listening to Spotlight on Broadway Radio. I'm your host, Jenna Tessa Fox. Since the COVID-19 coronavirus outbreak reached the U.S. earlier this year, Actors' Equity Association, the U.S. labor union that represents more than 51,000 professional performers and stage managers, has been taking a very public steps to protect its members amid an unprecedented disaster. To share some insights on Equity's efforts, uh, Kate Schindel is joining us today. After years of performing on and off Broadway and in national tours, uh, Ms. Schindel became president of AEA in 2015 and has continued to work on stage and on screen as a performer in addition to leading the union. Uh, Thank you very much for talking with us today, Kate. Hi, thanks for having me. First off, how have you been doing personally? I'm doing okay. I uh, I am up at uh, about a couple hours north of New York City, up in a town called Napanock. So, fortunately, we're able to do pretty much everything remotely right now. Uh, it seemed like as much as I wanted to be in New York, it was okay to be within driving distance uh, next to a pond. So, I, I really can't complain. Oh, very good. Glad to hear you're someplace safe. And Thank you. Can you talk a bit about what a typical day is like for you now? Oh, wow. Uh, It depends on the day. I mean, obviously, when the shutdown occurred, it was uh, very, very long days dealing with really difficult issues like how do we interpret contract language? How do we negotiate with theaters that have shut down? And for those who haven't offered to pay our members, any uh, additional salary or health contributions? How do we persuade them to do that? What what do those negotiations look like? How do we communicate to uh, to the 52,000 members broadly and then also to individual casts so that they know what we're doing on their behalf? Because as you can imagine, when essentially the entire industry shuts down within a few days and we represent people working everywhere from Broadway to little storefront theaters in small towns across America, there are differing and sometimes competing needs and everybody is in a state of, please help me, please give me information. Uh, it was, you know, it's been really satisfying, but I'm not going to say that it wasn't a lot of work and I am attentive to the possibility and and hold the belief that reopening may be more difficult than shutting down. Really? Well, I think so, because the shutdown wasn't something that we really had a hand in. We didn't have to make the decision, uh, when is it time for the industry to shut down? The, the various municipalities and states made that decision, and then it was all about being reactive to the situation that we found ourselves in. Now that it's anybody's guess when things are going to open back up again, and we may very well see some kind of phased reopening where small theaters might open first or some theaters in different parts of the country uh, may open before others do. Our focus is going to be twofold, I believe. One is making sure that there is a uniform set of standards that creates safety for the actors and stage managers and the other theater professionals on stage and backstage and in the front of house. Uh, Although, you know, there are different organizations representing those different constituencies. And two, collaborating with the employers and bargaining partners who are going to be in very real need of help financially in order to reopen. And the question that I've been spending a lot of time thinking about is how do we do that without decimating our contracts, without giving away the store uh, in order to support the industry? So I think it's going to be a very delicate collaboration. And we've got about 2,000 
unique employers all over the country. So it'll, it'll take a lot. Right. And that takes us right to my next question about uh, Dr. David Michaels. Uh, earlier this week or late last week, uh, Equity Tap Dr. David Michaels, who was formerly Assistant Secretary of Labor for the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, most popularly known as OSHA, uh, to help develop new health and safety standards for COVID-19. Could you tell me a bit about what went into that partnership and what you're hoping Dr. Michaels will be able to do for AEA's membership, especially given what you just said about the 2,000 different uh, partners? So equity has two categories of leadership, right? There is the elected volunteer leadership that still works in the industry. And then there is the paid staff leadership um, that essentially includes the business reps and uh, the regional directors and the field reps and the contract associates, et cetera. And so the head of the staff side, our executive director, told me about a week ago that she had been thinking about this and she thought she had identified uh, a candidate that would be a good fit for this. Um, and after hearing his resume, I absolutely agreed. And and see, the thing that I think can be really helpful here is that although we have, you know, professional staff who are used to hearing from equity members all over the country about the things that they're facing in their workplace, and we have volunteer elected leadership, uh, our counselors and our officers uh, who work in the industry, because we all still work in the industry, all of our experience lacks one thing in common, and that is epidemiological expertise, right? So I can say, how do we deal with the idea of an actor handing off a prop to another actor, um, identifying that as a concern? Because so much of when things are going to reopen has been focused on when will it be safe for audiences to gather again. But we're also talking about a profession in which the workers don't have any kind of social distancing in most of the shows we see. And, and that's not a, that's not criticism. The shows have just been staged for many, many years before a pandemic of this size. So identifying the procedures that need to be in place in order to make it safe even for us to go into the building and try to do what we do was something that we figured we were going to have to lead on because if we weren't going to do it, why would anyone else? So that's how... Dr. Michaels made his way into the fray. I I have not personally spoken to him yet, but I'm really looking forward to that because uh, this is important stuff. And it seems like he is really well positioned in terms of experience and knowledge to be able to help us uh, navigate this. Absolutely. And what are you hoping Dr. Michaels will be able to do to make sure that that the performers and the stage managers uh, are safe? Well, I think a lot will depend on what the status of the pandemic is by the time we start to reopen. And we're already hearing from theaters, for example, that are ready to start thinking about reopening with a reduced audience size. Um, I think the key point here is that we don't know what we don't know. Um, Like I said, it's easy for those of us on the staff side or those of us on the elected side to recognize that, you know, Two people kissing is not social distancing. There is next to no social distancing in the theater. And I think it's going to take creative direction and vision to figure out how to create some space between the actors and stage managers without pulling the audience out of the performance. Um, I'm not 
entirely sure how that will be accomplished, but I think it's really important to focus on. But in addition to that, we're talking about things like how much space uh, needs to be um, between each individual uh, makeup area, for example, how many people can be in a dressing room, uh, sanitizing procedures so that the employers can make sure that the workplace is safe. I assume that there will be recommendations on things like stage dooring, uh, because I know you know as well as I do that that's also a place where there tends to be very little personal space. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember back during Legally Blonde just thinking that I was really... uh, really wise for carrying my own Sharpie instead of taking anybody's pen to sign an autograph, for example. But, you know, those are sort of the typical things actors do when they don't want to get a cold. Um, This is obviously much more serious. And so we're looking for the kinds of workplace protections that other industries are getting. It's just that the, um, the unique demands of the theater industry are going to require Require some unique solutions. And often in spaces where an employer is dealing with a finite amount of square footage and uh, needs to understand exactly what will make the workplace safe so that they can make accommodations to the best of their ability. Sure. And uh, if any other unions have been finding experts like Dr. Michaels to help set up policies and standards to keep their members safe, uh, I have not heard of it. I also haven't heard of any producers working with experts to try and ensure safety either. So would you say that equity is trailblazing with these initiatives? And do you think other unions and organizations might follow suit? Well, I certainly hope so. And I imagine that there are conversations going on among all different kinds of groups. Um, for example, about, I want to say it was last week, um, there's an organization called COBUG, which is the Coalition of Broadway Unions and Guilds. And it's uh, exactly what it sounds like. It's an organization with representatives from each of the unions and guilds that work on Broadway. And I suggested that we form a subcommittee to start talking about the different safety standards that would need to be in place in order to meet everyone's needs. Because obviously, front of house and box office staff Uh, are going to have specific needs and dressers may have entirely different needs Um, and stagehands may have things that don't affect the actors necessarily, at least directly, or musicians who are very used to sitting shoulder to shoulder um, in an orchestra pit when the, you know, some of the players are clearing their instruments onto the floor. Um, You know, I'm thinking about the brass instruments in particular. So those are not things I'm an expert in, but it it struck me that uh, we should, at the very least, have a conversation and be on the same page about what we're going to be asking uh, the employers on Broadway to keep in mind when it's time for that reopening to start. And obviously, um, different spaces across the country have different uh, compositions of uh, union workers, uh, it, it sort of depends on where you are, but it seemed like taking a global look at it, uh, and, and at least understanding what each different constituency would need would be, uh, would be in our, in our collective interest. Certainly. And as you had said, uh, AEA goes way beyond New York City's theater scene. Can you talk a bit about how you are working with different regions and the VPs there and the different teams for all those different areas and what their needs are? We have been, <laughs> we have been uh, 
very, very frequently in communication. Uh, our council is 75 counselors and eight officers. We have met as a council a couple times uh, since this began, but we also have a much smaller executive committee of 17. And we've met, I would say, somewhere around 20 to 25 times since all this started because we had to do any number of discussions on how to deal with this contract or that contract and, uh, you know, approve agreements that were made or or report out on things that were going on. Um, We've been talking quite a bit about uh, media agreements, especially recently. We just had a meeting about that yesterday because it looks like there are going to be theaters that want to open with a partial audience and the opportunity to provide a virtual ticket to people who aren't comfortable coming to the theater yet, but they're trying to preserve their subscriber base. And the theaters have been hearing from longtime subscribers that if they can get some way to watch the show without having to go to a crowded theater, they'll renew their subscriptions. But if they don't, they won't. Now, the theaters need those subscribers. So we've been looking at new models that would allow the show still to happen live. And as I said, with safety precautions in place for people who um, who are working in the theater, but maybe only half of the audience is there in the brick and mortar space and the other half is watching a, a virtual version of the show. Um, so Yes, we have all been in in, uh, significant contact because these are things that resonate throughout the industry. And ironically, I'm not sure, you know, traditionally the the Broadway producers seem to be somewhat less interested in virtual ticket availability. Uh, Really? You know, yeah. And it's really interesting to me because I'll tell you, I have over the last, let's say, 10 years, I have met so many people at the stage door who will say, wow, I watched that MTV Legally Blood broadcast 200 times um, because they recorded it one of the very few times it was on. But there seems to be a belief in our industry that if you you let people watch something at home, that will decrease their desire to see it in the theater. Now, I think there's proof of concept all over the entertainment industry uh, that when people, or even with sports teams, for example, when people see something uh, on television, they want to go see it live more. Uh, And so, look, it's not my decision. All we can do is try to be responsive to what theaters are asking for, because ultimately, the rights holders make the decision of how they want to put out their product. I I do think that, um, that smaller theaters in particular and regional theaters are finding this option very interesting. We're also allowing them to make available uh, a media version of their archive recordings, which we've never done before. But again, these theaters are, they need revenue. And, you know, so we created a media agreement that would allow them to, um, to share their archive content in exchange for some payments to the actors and stage managers who are part of it. And do you think that may continue beyond this pandemic uh, as a means of raising more revenue for other, uh, for big theaters, small theaters uh, nationwide? I don't know the answer to that yet, because right now, just about everything we've done has been sort of sunset at June 30th, right? We haven't started thinking beyond that. Or, well, that's not true. We have started thinking beyond it, but we we haven't planned 
in great detail what happens after June. But, you know, the the things that we've done already came about in a matter of weeks. So certainly if there's a theater that says we would like to be able to do this, uh, we're trying to be as adaptable as possible to what those organizations need. Again, while making sure that if a theater is creating a revenue stream that uh, that our members can benefit from that as well. Because right now, we are also at about 100% unemployment and theater makers want to make theater, but they also want to put food on the table. Sure, absolutely. And as you had mentioned, some states are already planning to reopen. Uh, how is Equity working with its teams in those particular states and areas that may start holding live performances again, but before the situation is officially declared safe? So far, we haven't, or I haven't heard of too many places where large venues are being permitted to open. So we think that's probably still a few weeks away. At least I think it's at least a few weeks away. We have heard from equity members who have said that they were given an offer to go start working at a theater and spend two weeks in quarantine. And and what we have said uh, in the same announcement in which we said, the, let everybody know that we'd hired Dr. Michaels, is that nobody should go to work until we have safety standards in place and say it's safe to work there. Because you know as well as I do that particularly creative people want to be creative. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you, com- when you complicate that with the economic pressure that everybody's feeling, it doesn't do any good for most people to say that they're not going to go to work. That's, you know, that's part of the beauty of the solidarity of a union, that everyone will say, okay, I'm waiting till the union has, you know, cleared this as a safe place to work. Um, So, you know, I, it doesn't seem like anything's on fire right now. In fact, it seems like most of the places, uh, that have said they're going to reopen um, are still pending. But the other thing that we're being very clear about is that our members should not sign anything that waives their, uh, basically their right to a safe workplace, because that is always the employer's responsibility. And we want to make sure that if anybody puts something in front of an actor or stage manager that says, I really want to go back to work and I waive all my rights, uh, that they call us before they sign that piece of paper. It's always a good idea to call before you sign anything that's not your contract. Absolutely. Agreed. And uh, you're talking about the economic impact that everyone has been facing. Uh, How has Equity been working to make sure that its members can safely collect unemployment and other grants and loans and uh, still get revenue coming in? We have been working very hard on that. And Brandon, who's our communications director and our political director, has been extremely involved with the legislation. Um, I've been on a lot of calls about it as well. The first phase was, you know, the first piece of the CARES Act, right? And um, there were several things that were very important to us that are, again, somewhat unique to our industry. Um, You know, as well as I do, once again, that Actors and stage managers tend to budget their entire year around the contracts that we know we have, right? So in most workplaces, somebody goes to work every day, gets a check, this horrible situation comes along, um, they collect unemployment for a certain period of time, and then they will be able to go back to their jobs. In this case, not only are we not 100% sure that all the jobs will be available for 
actors and stage managers to go back to. But in some cases, they signed a contract or accepted an offer, but they hadn't started it yet. It doesn't mean it had any less impact on their ability to buy groceries. And on top of that, we've got lots of people, particularly the stage managers, um, but not exclusively stage managers who depend on side income from, let's, uh, for example, conventions or special events where they are, you know, not necessarily on an equity contract, but, you know, I have so many friends who would text me and say, well, I lost $7,000 today. Um, you know, I've had two jobs of my own canceled, which were going to be a significant portion of my income for the first half of the year. So, um, because I was hearing from so many people, the conversations that we started having and then started pushing very, very hard for, um, had to do with allowing people who would not usually qualify for unemployment, people who hadn't signed their contract yet, uh, people who hadn't started their contract yet, but had a bona fide accepted offer, or people who had event-based income that just evaporated, uh, would be able to qualify for unemployment in the same way that a traditional nine-to-five worker would. Uh, And that was absolutely huge. Equity uh, set aside, we we established something called the Curtain Up Fund, which is administered by the Actors Fund. We put an initial $500,000 into it, all of which has been given out uh, and then some to people who are actors and stage managers in urgent need of assistance. They, you know, looking at eviction or not being able to make their car payment or, you know, any of the other things that uh, medical bills, taking care of their families, any of the things that the Actors Fund is so good at helping with. And then we set aside an additional $250,000 to be used for matching donations. And uh, I think to date, the total that's been given away is around $600,000. And of course, yeah. And of course, the Actors Fund also independent of our our dedicated fund helps actors all the time, but the actors fund is for everybody in the entertainment industry, despite the name, it's not just for actors. So we wanted to make sure we could set aside um, money specifically dedicated to that. We're pushing very hard right now for a hundred percent Cobra subsidy. We are advocating for something we've been working on for a long time having to do. It's uh, called the, um, the Qualified Performing Artist Tax Deduction, uh, which has been a part of the tax code since 1986. And we've had dozens of meetings about it in the last year or two with legislators. We've got a bipartisan bill, the Performing Artist Tax Parity Act, that would basically update the thresholds above which you can't qualify for it. Um, It allows you to deduct ordinary business expenses, um, just as we used to do before tax reform in 2017. but it sat on the books for a long time without the thresholds being updated. So right now you can still take ordinary business deductions if you are a performing artist, but only if you make $16,000 or less per year. So um, we've been working on getting that uh, jacked up to a hundred thousand dollars for individual filers, 200,000 for married couples filing jointly and, Uh, So we've been having a lot of calls about that too. I mean, there are a number of legislative things that we are actively working on, but I would say that once the unemployment bit uh, was at least uh, 
at least successful, I suppose, although there are still problems with people being able to actually collect unemployment and whether or not the states are set up to handle that kind of gig work. Um, We've shifted our focus to uh, the COBRA subsidy because, as you know, we earn our health coverage on our multi-employer plan one work week at a time. And we earn it for a limited period of time. So while the entire industry is not working, we don't want people getting dropped off their insurance in the middle of a pandemic. But COBRA is so expensive that, um, that we're advocating for that subsidy. Excellent. And equity started preparing for this at the beginning of March, uh, before any shutdowns were first announced. Uh, could you talk a bit about what those early days were like uh, before that first press release went out? And I think it was what, March 2nd, March 3rd? Mm-hmm. Uh, what were the main priorities? What were the top concerns? And did you experience any pushback from people? I think that the earliest preparations were mostly focused on making sure that our staff could all work from home. And we have, you know, dozens and dozens of staff members in New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, and an office in Orlando. And so making sure that all of the, um, all of the CRM, uh, you know, the operating system was accessible to each individual business rep at home instead of just at the office, you know, expanding availability of the, the tools that they actually need to do their jobs in anticipation of a possible shutdown was the earliest priority. And what, what that seems to have resulted in, interestingly, is that uh, as we go forward, there will be a question about whether or not everybody really needs to be in one office. You know, again, that's, that is on the staff side. So that's not my decision per se, but it's an interesting opportunity to have more people working for equity who don't live just in our office cities and commute to the office every day. I mean, it would make it really interesting for our membership in Kansas city, for example, or Seattle, if they had a field rep, uh, for example, who lived there and could, you know, didn't have to fly from Los Angeles or Chicago every time they needed to make a visit because they worked from home, but they lived in a regional market. Um, so it's it's actually, I think the silver lining of all of this is that it may expand equity's ability to operate even more efficiently in the liaison areas. Um, but we were having a lot of conversations about what things would look like if the theater started to shut down. And and when we started to see what was happening in California and Seattle, obviously those were some of the first markets that were hit hard and had some of the first shutdowns. And from there, especially, honestly, once once there was that cluster in New Rochelle with someone who was going back and forth on the Metro North to Grand Central every day, I think uh, everybody realized it was probably imminent and that a proactive shutdown to try and get ahead of the virus might be a wiser decision than waiting until everything was forced to shut down because everyone was sick. Um, So hopefully, I mean, the preparations certainly made us able to react a lot better um, once things started to close down. But a lot of that was logistical. How do you mean logistical? Just making sure that people could work from home and, and, and take, you know, not have to come into the office before we even knew that the office or businesses were shutting down. Um, So that 
when things started to get shut down, we didn't have to start from zero and say, okay, everybody has to stay home and we'll figure out what happens when somebody in Seattle needs to call their business rep. Like we could make that transition because we were ready for it. So with all that in mind, what would you say is equity's primary focus right now? And do you see that focus changing over the next day, next week, next month? Uh, Right now, I would say that our focus is overwhelmingly uh, on safety, making sure that when, you know, just as we prepared to be able to shut down, we're now preparing for the questions and processes that are going to have to happen when theaters start to reopen. Because we've heard of a couple of them. Um, I was just reading about Barrington Stage today, which which seems interesting, the way, the way they're trying to just reinvent their entire model and do shows that you know, don't involve physical contact and um, take out a lot of their seats. And uh, it's, you know, there will be theaters that want to get ahead of this in a non-traditional way. Um, But we have to know, and, you know, obviously, again, Dr. Michaels is going to be really helpful here. We have to know what industry-wide set of standards will make onstage and backstage safe. You know, I've said so many times recently that, (laughs) It always seems to catch people by surprise, even if they like the theater, that our industry is one of the only ones I can think of where it's not only legal, but totally expected to be required to kiss your coworker as a condition of your job. Um, And, you know, hand off props. You can't, I mean, how does an actor sanitize a prop before handing it to another actor? I mean, you could take it to any number of degrees of absurdity, how, you know, (laughs) what makes the the playing space safe. But I also think that we're going to need to be talking about, you know, whether or not employers are going to try to implement mandatory antibody testing. Um, Because I've heard whispers about that on the TV and film side. And, you know, to me, that would mean if I have not been sick, I can't work in the industry. Um, There are some very difficult questions ahead of us. And so that's why we're preparing now, because even though I, again, I don't think that large scale reopenings are coming in the next few weeks, certainly. And we're hearing lots of speculation about, you know, varying by months on like when Broadway might be able to start reopening. Um, We've got to be ready for it so that when a theater comes to us with a plan and says, here's what I want to do, we say, okay, great. I'm glad you're doing that for your audience. These are the things you need to do for the actors and the stage managers. Wonderful. Uh, For more information on what AEA is doing to help the crisis, you can visit uh, actorsequity.org or check out the Twitter feed at Actors Equity. You can also follow Kate Schindel on Twitter at both AEA President and at her personal uh, handle, uh, Kate Schindel. Uh, Kate, thank you very, very much for taking the time to talk with us, for sharing your insights. Uh, All best wishes to you, to your family, and to uh, everyone you work with, all the members and all the teams. Thank you, Janet. It's always delightful to talk to you because you you ask such interesting, thoughtful questions, and it's uh, it, it's it's lovely. Oh, have a good you. one. You too. Thank you. Best wishes to you. Bye. 